Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mike McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. This week, I spoke with Ronald Chase, Professor of Biology Emeritus at McGill University in Montreal, about his 2013 book, Schizophrenia, A Brother Finds Answers in Biological Science published by Johns Hopkins University Press. In our interview, we discussed how Chase became a biologist in the first place, and how his life experiences compelled him to pen this book, which is part memoir and part scientific journey through our current knowledge of a highly visible but frequently misunderstood brain disorder. I appreciated the time Chase took to unpack some of the studies he describes in the book, and for reflecting on his abiding interest in the social and philosophical problems of mental illness. And I encourage you to check out the book for yourselves for an engaging and personal read. I'm speaking this morning with Ronald Chase, Professor of Biology Emeritus at the uh, McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Ronald, thanks for joining us. Oh, good. Nice to be here. And so we'll be speaking about Ronald's 2013 book published by Johns Hopkins University Press, Schizophrenia, A Brother Finds Answers in Biological Science. So, Ronald, I'm just interested, we usually like to start things in the New Books Network by asking people about how they kind of got into uh, their field. So, I guess for you, this question is two-pronged. One, how did you get into the field of uh, biology? And then two, how did you get into writing books of a kind of a broader audience? Oh, long story. It's all connected, of course. Um, it starts with my brother's illness, schizophrenia. So he became ill, uh, seriously ill when he was 25 years old. I was 18 years old. 
And that was a that was a very difficult period for everyone. And uh, you know, it left me with so many questions about what was going on and uh, what it cost all this and what could be done for him, what was going to happen to me. So uh, that dominated my thoughts for decades. And uh, after, uh, well, meantime, I was dealing with my career path, so to speak. And I went down one road after another. And eventually uh, realized that I needed to find out how the brain works. Unfortunately, I didn't have much of a science background at that time. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, (laughs) as luck would have it, uh, the psychology department at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, had just begun. It had just formed. And they were looking for students. I had a degree in psychology from Stanford University, albeit it was uh, psychology light, so to speak. It was, uh, there wasn't much science in it. But it was psychology. (laughs) And uh, furthermore, I was a competitive runner. And the wife, of the then chair of psychology at MIT had been a competitive high jumper. She was impressed with me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, no, uh, one way or another, I became a graduate student in psychology, and uh, that department was very forward-looking and had a very... uh, Its approach was to, to learn how the mind works by studying the brain. So I was trained up as a neuroscientist. Uh, And then I got my job at McGill University, started teaching neuroscience in the biology department, and all the while thinking about my brother and thinking about those unanswered questions about schizophrenia. It was only after my retirement from McGill in 2008 which happened to be, if I'm not mistaken, yes, 50 years after my brother had his first psychotic episode, that I started, uh, you know, trying to put it all together and write my book, which was really uh, at that point with the uh, the book about my life. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it was <laughs> on the face of it, it was a book about my brother's life. Uh, it was mine as well. Mm-hmm. And you've written a previous book as well, aside from publications in your field, correct? Well, I wrote, yes, I had one book, uh, I think you called it Monographs, mm-hmm. Academic <laughs> Monograph. I call it my uh, Snail Brain book. It's a book, it, uh, it's a book called uh, Behavior and Its Neural Control in Gastropod Mollus. So this group of animals includes snails and slugs, terrestrial and marine. And uh, they were the subject of my research for 38 years at McGill. 
the reason I started studying these animals is is because they have very large neurons. So larger than in any other animal. The neuron size is about 10 times the size of human nerve cells. So this offered technical advantages. And uh, as it turns out, my scientific hero was a fellow named Eric Kandel. Yeah. Psychiatrist and neuroscientist in New York City. So he and one of his... uh, (laughs) <laughs> one of his co-workers who I had, whom I knew and was a friend of mine, they inspired my career. Uh, so, and Candell is a very interesting man. Many of you know him. You, I can see you know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because his, his, uh, he was a psychiatrist, grew up in Vienna under the shadow of Sigmund Freud. But he studied these uh, marine slugs, one particular species of marine slug or gastropod mollusk, and worked with these large neurons to dissect the uh, neural control of behavior in, in this particular sea slug. And he studied one particular behavior, a simple reflex. He found out that the animal had a simple learning mechanism where the animal could learn to to modulate that reflex. And Kandel went on for, what, 30, 40 years to study how exactly that animal learned that little bit of behavior. And he started with the big neurons. He went down into the biochemistry of it, into the physiology of synaptic transmission, and eventually into the genetics and molecular biology. So he had a kind of call it in philosophical terms a reductionistic approach to uh, the scientific issue and his spin on it was actually that that he was studying uh, psychiatric disorders (laughs) uh, because uh, learning in the broadest sense is an important factor in in psychiatric breakdowns Uh, Frankly, I was not thinking too much about psychiatry in doing this work. Mm-hmm. I was thinking just kind of it would be neat to figure out how these brain circuits work. Uh, I was convinced that uh, studying brain circuits in this uh, marine slug well, would give insight into uh, brain circuits in human brain. And I still believe it does. So that was my book uh, about uh, very detailed uh, information about particular nerve cells and particular nerve circuits in uh, snails and slugs and how they lead to behavior. Mm-hmm. And sort of like Kandel, I mean, Kandel also went on to write books of popular import on kind of the cultural history of Vienna and then on memory. So was that in any way an inspiration for you? No, but his my book on the my book on snail brains was actually a uh, I I viewed it as a an update on what I believe was Kendall's first ever book, mm-hmm. 
which was called Cellular Basis of Behavior. Mm-hmm. And it was about the nervous system in, in the, the sea slug. And that book, by the time I wrote my book, his was, what, uh, 40 years old, something like that? Yeah. Oh, I actually meant an influence on the current book we're discussing, Schizophrenia. What, what did? Whether his, uh, whether his kind of academic explorations um, outside of his biology career expired, inspired uh, some of your most recent work. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, not really. I mean, I uh, still have great respect for the man, but, but my book on schizophrenia is driven from my own from my own perspective and uh, mm-hmm. I don't really see any model in that um, mm-hmm. he was a model in my laboratory life mm-hmm. um, I mean one problem with using him as a model for my psychiatric writing is <laughs> I, uh, he's the psychoanalyst right? yeah. in in uh, spirit or in commitment I I don't understand I can't understand how I can I sort of understand but and he's written some a couple of brilliant articles about how he reconciles his psychoanalysis with his neuroscience but I find it a bit of a stretch and uh, that's not that's not where I am mm-hmm. yeah, forces are hard to reconcile uh, I haven't read his book on the art in Vienna in his days. So, Okay. Well, it's interesting stuff, too. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously, because this book is so deeply inspired um, and based in your own life story, at what point did you decide to turn it into a book? I was on the side, so to speak following the literature on schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not in any disciplined manner, but I I checked the journals and read the article now and then. Oh. And then uh, I bought the book in 1997 called Schizophrenia Genesis by Irving Gottesman. And this book this book inspired me. Hmm. So this is the book about the subtitle is The Origins of Madness. And Gottesman is a uh, he's a PhD in psychology. He's a specialist in heredity. Heredity. And he did the uh, pioneering studies on the the uh, transmission of schizophrenia in families, mm-hmm. the hereditary risk of schizophrenia from family. Uh, and he did so by studying twins. So these are the twin studies. Yeah. So basically he found that he looked at, at uh, identical twins, which where the two have identical genetic makeup, versus fraternal twins, where they, they don't have the same genes. 
And he found that if for the uh, in the identical case, if one twin has schizophrenia, the other one has about 50% chance of getting schizophrenia. Whereas for fraternal twins, if, if one of them has schizophrenia, I forgot, the other one has something like, say, 25% chance. So the risk is twice as much, at least. I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. In the case of identical twins, and that that very strongly implicates the genetic component of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I found the book very interesting, uh, very compelling in that science, and also in its structure, because uh, he has chapters in there which are entirely devoted to, to personal stories of schizophrenia, either written by the, the people themselves or written by family members and so on. And that mix uh, really caught my attention. So uh, anyway, uh, by the time I started writing my book, I was retired. I had time on my hands. <laughs> In contrast to these the snail brain book, it took me six years to write that thing, even with a couple of sabbatical leaves thrown in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I conceived this plan to uh, to bring together my scientific knowledge and uh, also to tell my personal story, mm-hmm. uh, the story of my brother, my brother. And my relation to him and his illness and so on. Mm-hmm. And that so, link to uh, schizophrenia, Jenny, as you just revealed, is kind of a good way into my first question for you, um, which okay. is about kind of the... Oh, you haven't been indicate. asking questions so far? What's that? <laughs> oh, well, my first prepared question, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like to let things flow naturally. But so the book begins with the account of, you know, you growing up with your brother and then sort of the first signs of your brother's kind of early episodes. And then the discussions about uh, schizophrenia as an illness revolve around uh, its genetic and environmental components. So I was wondering if you could unpack like a few of the issues there, as you've already done with the twin studies, um, with the twin studies research in which it was shown that, you know, shared genetic material was um, would greatly put one at risk more for schizophrenia than simply being around uh, people in the same environment. So could right. you unpack a couple of those different uh, studies? Yeah, well, I, I think you're talking about the, the point that twins, uh, uh, identical twins, they not only share the same genes, they share the same environment growing up in mm-hmm. most cases. That is, they're in the same household at the same time. So, uh, so well, that's why it's important to look at the fraternal twins as well, because they're also growing up in the same environment, the same household at the same time, usually. And yet there's a difference in their risk in the case of, in the case of those two types of twins. And then there are other uh, ancillary studies that were looked at in the regard. So it, in some cases, the twin pair is broken up at an early age. Uh, so the one, one member of the pair stays in the, in the birth family, another one goes elsewhere. And, but even then, the, the risk factor remains high, higher for the identical twins than for, for, for the fraternal twins. Mm. Uh, 
But then the other interesting side of this, I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but uh, is the 50% risk factor for the identical twins. Uh, that's high, but it's a lot less than 100%. Mm-hmm. So genes isn't everything. And uh, and you could say, although it's not scientifically accurate, you could say that 50% of the risk is due to heredity. What's the other 50%? Mm-hmm. And that uh, that's a question that remains to be answered. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hereditary risk as well, it's... One of the things that you point to is that a lot of the studies are kind of uh, constrained by sample size. So you have um, conditions where uh, certain specific genes are implicated, but then your sample size is far less than desired, especially so in these um, kind of you know more life history-focused studies of twins. So how has the field tried to mitigate that issue? Uh, what's happening is the, uh, the sample sizes are increasing. <laughs> So this is dramatic right now, right as we speak. I'm sure people are going over the numbers in labs around the world. Uh, The sample sizes are exploding. Like now they're getting to be hundreds of thousands, actually. Hmm. And uh, this is done by multiple means. Uh, First place, the scientists around the world get together. They form these consortiums. So they all trying to answer the same question. They pool their data. So uh, a lot of countries have uh, large ready-to-go databases, like in in, uh, Denmark, I believe it is. They have these registries. Everybody everybody, uh, who gets ill with any disease is written down in a registry. And they know all the uh, siblings, the parents, and their diseases, and so on. And, and then, uh, so this is ready to go. Just need to take the, do uh, to, uh, to analyze the genomes of the people, put it together with those in New Zealand and uh, Australia, and so on. Uh, so that's one thing: the getting together of the, of the scientists to pool their data. The other thing is the dramatically. Uh, the drop in the, in the cost of doing genetic analysis. So nowadays you can do an entire genome for about $1,000. And uh, with reductions in the cost, it just makes things easier. And, and, the, and they're, more, they're efficient now. You can do them quickly. Oh, people got together, getting their acts together in terms of uh, statistical sophistication and data management and so on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if I'm ever to write a second edition of the book, which is a possibility, it will be primarily for the reason of updating the genetic information in there. Mm. Uh, yeah, although, that being said, it seems that the same questions persist and that today what uh, how many years uh, three years since the book was published I think substantively not much has changed in terms of uh, identification of genes and resolution of uh, 
Well, you want to talk about the major issues in, in genetic uh, causation of schizophrenia? Because well, I don't central think book, been, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've been resolved either. Uh, so I guess so. Genetics. So genetic risk can have many particular uh, forms, and I guess one of the main debate or controversy is whether the the cause lies in multiple relatively common genes that have mutated or in a few rare mutations uh, any one of which can greatly increase the risk so so uh yeah, so it's long ago been determined that there's no single gene that causes schizophrenia. Uh, and there are many genes that have been implicated. When I talk about genes as being implicated, I mean gene mutations, mutations in particular genes. So uh, there are many such mutations that have been identified as causing risk of schizophrenia. But the the actual increase in risk for any one of those genes is very small, less than 1% increase in risk for mutation in one of these genes. So the idea is that uh, you have to have many of these mutations in many different genes. And the challenge is to know well, what combinations of genes is it? And there's probably several or many different combinations of many different genes, mm-hmm. which is a you know a challenge to figure that thing out. The other the other main hypothesis is there own there are many fewer genes involved, but these produce high risk it, mutation in any one contributes to high risk. And these genes are, are, are rare, thought to be rare in the population. So, again, it's probably get, getting a combination of these rare mutations, which is getting getting a, a few of these rare mutations, which is causes the high risk. But now, again, that you get, get the statistical problem in terms of finding these genes. Because, as I say, they're very rare. Uh, so you need to get sample many uh, genomes, comparing the schizophrenia genomes and normal genomes before you find these rare mutations. And by the way, they're they're rare because they've been selected out through through uh, natural selection. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm getting too technical here. No, no. But I am actually interested in also kind of going over to the clinical side of the story for a second. So yeah. um, one of over the course of uh, Jim's treatment, uh, it's, it was really interesting how your mother kind of played this very active uh, facilitating role and was something of an autodidact in how she sought out uh, she sought out information on relevant psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. So. Your brother's really first kind of long-term care was through a psychoanalyst, if I'm not uh, correct. 
And I'm yeah. wondering, uh, given kind of the earlier point in our discussion about uh, Kendall's affinity for psychoanalysis, what you think that this kind of early treatment, both as a, a paradigm for care and as a way of self-understanding, what do you think that did for your brother at the time? I know the climate of L.A. was very dominated by psychoanalysis, but what do you think that it really, uh, what it contributed in this case? Nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it contributed nothing. That's my impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, I was, I wasn't, you know, I was like maybe 16, 17 year, years old when he started this uh, treatment. And in the beginning, I didn't even know he was getting that psychoanalysis. I was told he was seeing an allergist mm-hmm. once a week. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he was having his troubles. He continued to have his troubles. And then he had a psychotic breakdown all the while he's seeing the psychoanalyst. So, and then at that point, the psychoanalyst said, oh, I give up. You know, I can't help this fellow. Uh, and then once he got into the hospital system, which where basically he remained for the rest of his life, he, in the beginning, he was getting a, some kind of psychotherapy, I don't think it was psychoanalysis. But uh, there was some kind of talk therapy involved there also. Mm-hmm. But once he got onto drugs, uh, that uh, helped him a lot, and I don't think he ever had any... Serious uh, talk with the psychoanalyst, uh, with a psychiatrist of any nature mm-hmm. after that, after the drugs. Mm-hmm. So, in my view, uh, psychoanalysis just was a waste of time and money, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not, I'm not gen- condemning psychoanalysis uh, broadly for everything, but for serious psychotic illness, no. Mm-hmm. And we, it's interesting because these days we tend to think of psychiatry as being increasingly driven by uh, pharmaceuticals and very kind of drug first. But in the course of your brother's treatment, that was not really the first thing that happened. He sort of went through a few different hospitals. Um, and I know that electroconvulsive therapy was uh, very much in vogue at the time. So, yeah, what were your brother's early years kind of going between uh, state mental hospitals like? Yeah, that was rough. Oh, because you have to recognize this, this this thing came down on the family like uh, from from outer space, <laughs> and uh, my parents didn't know what to do, what to make of it, and so on. So uh, he settled around uh, two or three hospitals, and he received electroconvulsive shock therapy. Oh, which was supposed to help him, but but didn't. I mean, uh, I remember one one uh, meeting with him, actually a couple meetings with him at two different hospitals while he was undergoing electroconvulsive shock therapy, and he was just basically out of it. You know, he was out of it, and he ramble on, babbled but not say very much. He was kind of a quiet guy anyway. 
so and, and in one in one occasion he was really disoriented and uh, I mean I know I know that he did recover from each of each of those uh, shocks, but then they get but then he goes psychotic again. They give him more shocks and so on. So. Uh, uh, as with psychoanalysis, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, shock therapy is, is quite a revolting idea, especially when you kind of get uh, really serious about thinking what's going on there. They do it either with electroconvulsive shock or with uh, insulin. They can they can induce the convulsions in the brain with insulin. Uh, now, many people defend the procedure uh, even today for mostly for major depression, where apparently it, it, it will bring them out of the, of the depression and, and make them uh, open to other types of therapy. Uh, and uh, I think that there's still maybe some use for electroconvulsive shock in cases of schizophrenia where they are not responding to medication. So as, as uh, bizarre as the procedure may be, it may have its merits, but in Jim's case, it didn't help. Mm-hmm. And sort of through Jim's treatments, you kind of, uh, in your analysis of schizophrenia, the disease, you uh, craft an argument about the kind of very physical and local existence of uh, mental illnesses actually as brain illnesses. And I was wondering if you could uh, you could unpack that a bit more for our listeners because I think it really forms uh, like a good basis for the rest of your arguments in the book about why, say, treating schizophrenia as a brain illness can lead to uh, greater destigmatization of the condition and whatnot. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could go into that for a bit. Ah, I'm writing another book about that right now. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, there's a long history to this thing. I mean, uh, basically, uh, it goes back to the mid-19th century when, uh, well, actually, it goes back to the uh, 17th century, if I'm not mistaken, or at least it, when people were starting to look at the brain. Mm-hmm. Dissection, postmortem dissections, and there was this fellow named Willis in uh, I think the 17th century, who actually had some speculations about how sparks in the brain could be causing abnormal behavior. So uh, you know, I mean, it's obvious for a long time that the brain's involved in mental function. Also. Uh, well, I don't want to give you too much history here, but the, 1868, Wilhelm uh, Griesing, Wilhelm Greisinger, a German psychiatrist, uh, who was a very smart man, very kind of uh, influential as a as an internal medicine guy, and then as a psychiatrist guy. 
he started using uh, an expression translating from the German. Instead of calling these conditions mental illness, he called them so-called mental illness. Sogenannten Geisteskrankenheit. Uh, and he, he had this famous uh, expression that uh, mental illnesses are brain illnesses. So this is 1868. Uh, and uh, well, even in our days now, the organization NAMI, National Alliance for Mental Illness, uh, was a big uh, grassroots organization for mental illness based in, in the United States. They promote the idea that mental illness is brain illness. So I, you know, for myself, uh, I have no doubt that that was the case. That there were because there's ample evidence, which I review in the book, about uh, brain abnormalities that are seen in schizophrenia patients. Now, of course, some people would say, well, the brain, the abnormalities you see in the brains of these patients is the result of their illness, which is in the mind, they say. And because of that, or because maybe because of the medication, things go wrong in the brain. Well, that's simply not true, because uh, there's ample evidence now from uh, non-medicated individuals, people who get schizophrenia or other psychotic illnesses, and before they're treated, they show these these abnormalities in the brain. Or even now, people there's investigations in people who are who are at high risk for schizophrenia because of family illness. And uh, these people also these at risk individuals who are, have not shown any psychotic symptoms. They also have these same abnormalities in the brain as do the full-blown full blown schizophrenia patients. Uh, you know, plus, well, other lines of evidence, such as, for example, fact, the simple fact that the uh, medications do help in schizophrenia. Those medications are acting on synapses in the brain. Another advantage of this approach is I'm, I'm kind of recall, uh, calling to mind a very evocative moment in the book where you're visiting Jim uh, while he's staying in LA at a place it's called the, it's not called the Villa, is it? Um, yes. The, the, lobby uh, of the hotel, the Villa, what the, uh, uh, the Villa something. Yeah. Yeah. But in, you it's, a, it's just a, basically an apartment building with a bunch of patients in it. Mm-hmm. And then and you and him go to visit uh, the lobby of a very nice hotel that seems to be kind of a favorite place of his, right? And you sort of begin to notice immediately that um, everybody is not at ease and that he may have been there before and been uh, removed. So there's this, you know, one of the issues with schizophrenia is not just its causes and origins or even treatment through, um, through pharmaceutical medicines, but 
actually how to kind of, you know, normalize and reintegrate people who suffer from schizophrenia into society. So do you think that this kind of brain-not-mind approach to illness can actually help, uh, you know, inform the public and destigmatize and lead to kind of a better understanding of schizophrenia and related conditions? Ah, basically, yes, I do agree with that. I, uh, the problem with viewing mental illness as something in the mind is that it promotes the notion that, you know, if these, if these people really try, they could get out of it. Uh, after all, it's in their minds. And uh, it's a question of will, willpower. And they they got screwed up in their minds, and now they've got to work to straighten themselves out. And so that, if you think that mental illness is in the mind, this, this puts uh, the onus on the patient to get better. It, it's saying that it's the patient's fault that they're not thinking right or they don't have the willpower, so it's their fault. So that is not good for the patient or for the family members. It is what we call stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the interesting thing is, and this is, uh, I'm not sure how to deal with this, the actual uh, studies, like opinion studies, I guess you'd call them, that have looked at what happens when People, what happens when people are led to believe that mental illness, mental illness is actually brain illness? Does this remove the stigma? And the uh, findings are that it does not remove the stigma. They're calling mental, that when people are convinced that brain illness, that mental illness is a brain illness, they still stigmatize the uh, victims. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't seem to really help in that regard. Uh, my feeling is that we should get rid of mental illness altogether. And then there would be no confusion, and then maybe stigma would go away. I think schizophrenia, for example, should simply be schizophrenia. And and a condition which is marked by certain problems in the brain. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, schizophrenia is not mental in cause, and it's not an illness. It's not caused by germs, which is basically what illnesses are. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not a single thing anyway, a single condition. They're, they're it's tremendously uh, heterogeneous or varied in its symptoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, gene, the genes that are associated with schizophrenia are also associated with similar conditions like bipolar disorder, even depression, autism. All, they, they all have common genes associated with them. So... I don't see schizophrenia as an illness. I don't see it as as mental. I, it's a problem. It's a condition associated with certain 
brain malfunctions and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's it's be like uh, just like uh, glaucoma in the in the eyes. It's not an illness. It's not mental. and kind of pointing toward the multiple different kinds and different manifestations of schizophrenia and many other conditions you uh, later in the book talk about some of the potential evolutionary trade-offs and advantages um, say that these things lead to increased intelligence and depth of thought and there's been some evolutionary studies linking um, risk factors for these conditions to what would be considered you know desirable human reproductive traits so what can you say of that approach yeah that's uh, very interesting uh, yeah the idea is that there's a trade-off that uh, Schizophrenia, people with schizophrenia are very creative. Therefore, there must be something in their genetic makeup which is not only producing schizophrenia, but also the creativity. So maybe if you just didn't have quite so much of that genetic factor, then you'd be creative. So they're kind of two faces to one thing. And maybe even schizophrenia is not such a bad thing because, after all, these people are creative. Well, that argument seems to fall on its face when you really look at the facts. Because, first of all, uh, people with schizophrenia are generally not very creative. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, these the bizarre hallucinations and uh, delusions they have are not productive <laughs> because they don't. And they're not even creative because they're coming you know, without any intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then the other thing is, if it, the one prediction of this is that the family members, siblings, such as myself, <laughs> would be highly creative. You know, they wouldn't have schizophrenia, but they'd be highly creative. Because they have this good part, not the bad part. Uh, well, empirical research doesn't support this idea. And then you look at, uh, then people point to this fellow, this mathematician fellow. Do you remember his name? I can't remember his name. Nash, right? Pardon me? Nash, right? Nash, yeah. Nash, yeah. The, the, the beautiful. Mind, mm-hmm. hello, the uh, mathematician at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. He well, he was very yeah. intelligent and very creative, and very bright, and had schizophrenia, presumably. Uh, all right, inception. It's a heterogeneous disease. Fact of the matter is that, uh, on average, people with schizophrenia have lower intelligence than general population, and they do poorly in school. Mm-hmm. And they're they're not creative or productive. Uh, and uh, and the other thing, yeah. So so the reason why all this is interesting to me is because the creativity notion has been used to uh, as a answer to the question: Why doesn't schizophrenia disappear? Mm-hmm. If it's so bad, why doesn't natural selection get rid of it? as it does other bad things. Uh, 
And so some people say, well, schizophrenia sticks around because it's good side, it's good, these creativity side. Um, but uh, the, the real reason why schizophrenia sticks around is because there's, there's, it takes a long time to get rid of bad genes or mu- mutated genes. And given the number of them that are involved in producing schizophrenia, uh, and the f- and the frequency with which mutations occur naturally for any gene in any person, what's happening is the mutations are coming in. Oh, oh, and given one other fact that, that so many uh, genes are involved in brain function. I forgot, I think it's something like half of all genes are involved in, in brain function. So all the time in the human population, mutations are coming in that affect brain function. And even though some of them are being eliminated through natural selection, some of the mutations, there are others still coming in. And uh, brain function can be disturbed by all sorts of means involving all sorts of genes. And I think that's why schizophrenia is so heterogeneous and why it shares so many common features with other mental illnesses like bipolar, autism, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so many ways in which the brain, brain is getting affected. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a long answer, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think the creative, creativity linked with schizophrenia is a red herring. That's really interesting. And so I guess I only have, uh, we're running out of time, sort of, so I only really have one more question for you, and that's about, um, I guess, an issue you don't speak as much directly to in the book, but really is kind of informing the basic pretext of it, and that's the kind of, uh, you know, public health treatment of schizophrenia and kind of long-term um, mental patients and how they can best be accommodated for in society. Um, because, you know, Jim throughout his life moved through a bunch of different treatment centers and a lot of these were state funded. I think that was, was, was his care entirely state funded? Yes. And so I'm wondering what kinds of struct, and obviously, you know, mental illness is a problem that, uh, definitely crosses, um, socioeconomic strata and is also very unfortunately concentrated, um, in certain races. So I'm wondering how, what, which ways can, uh, you know, the U.S. health system, at least, I know you're speaking from Canada, but how can it change to accommodate um, these kind of like lifelong conditions and how, you know, how might these things best be treated as both a level at the, um, both the individual and the population level? Yeah. <laughs> Big question. First, well, first of all, I have, I'm not an expert in this. I haven't thought that much about it. And I'm not very familiar with what's happening in the States in this regard right now. But basically, it's a matter of money, throwing some money there. Mm-hmm. Uh, providing the means by which these people can be live in a supportive environment. Uh, encouraging them, helping them to be productive insofar as they can be. Uh, but like, you know, if we could go back to what Jim got, which was state-supported 
accommodations in a residence in which there were other people suffering from similar conditions, where he was uh, fed, given a room, taken care of, uh, provided with some medical care as needed, uh, provided with the drugs that maintain him and limit his psychosis. Uh, that's, for my, my feeling, that was the best that he could have had. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, the, these people can live with families, and that was a possibility with Jim's case, but uh, in practical terms, it, it really wasn't a, a starter. I don't think he would have been any better off living with me, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't possible to live with my parents at that time. So, uh, but this is expensive, you know, and uh, society... Uh, it's got to find the means. <laughs> the old solution was to put them away in asylums out in the countryside. Uh, I think those days are gone, although some people talk about bringing them back. Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, on that, on that disconcerting note, I'm wondering uh, a bit more. You talked about this earlier in the interview, but about your current, uh, the current book that you're working on as we like to conclude here. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to talk, I'm, I'm trying to write about uh, when the period in which uh, mental illness generally started to be considered as a medical condition, which was in the latter part of, of the 19th century, basically the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And it basically happened in Germany. So this was a big change in long history of mental illness. Uh, People started to take seriously the notion that mental illness as we know it is a brain brain condition. They started looking in the brain for for, uh, signs or uh, correlates of mental illness. They started doing... they, uh, They took a scientific approach to symptoms and and tried to identify, characterize, define the diseases, as they called them then, the different types of mental illness. So it was at that time that schizophrenia was identified, described, and declared a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that condition was differentiated from manic-depressive psychosis, which we now call bipolar disease. And these were thought to be what philosophers called natural kinds of illness, the mm-hmm. real, diff, real things that were different and that could be studied as things in nature. So people were doing experiments on psychological functions, like reaction times <laughs> was a favorite which could be linked to these conditions and maybe give some insight into it. And, uh, and, and, and the patients were brought in from these country asylums. Right? Well, they were 
brought into clinics that were associated with university departments of psychiatry. And so the whole enterprise became one of medical diagnosis and treatment. Just at the first time then, in the, from 1880 to onward, mm. or, sorry, from, 19, from 1880 onward. And so I'm trying to uh, write about some of the personalities, the, the doctors who, who were leading in this. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that sounds fascinating. We look forward to that book coming out as well, and uh, maybe we can have you back on here. Great. <laughs> We'd love, love to do it. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Ronald. And everyone, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of New Books in Medicine. Thanks yes, so much. Yes, it was fun. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, too.